Welcome to Unburying the Dead, Episode 7. We are a part of Silver Shamrock's HorrorCast, a podcast network that includes Killing Time with Silver Shamrock and Dead Headspace, a show hosted by Brennan and myself where we talk to creators in horror, crime fiction, and dark fiction such as Chuck Palahniuk and Peter Straub. I'm your host, Patrick R. McDonough, joined by my co-host, Brennan LaFaro. Say hi, sir. Hello, everybody. And we... Hi, sir. (laughs) (laughs) and uh unfortunately ken could not make it today he will be here with us next episode our guest host is mr chuck polnick say hi chuck hi chuck that gets funnier every time sir uh (laughs) so normally ken takes care of this part where he introduces the book so that'll be up to uh myself um basically the bullet points it's uh ira levin's 1967 uh rosemary's baby and before we dive into the plot or anything like that um i just i want to hear from you chuck why you picked this book to write a forward for because we know that uh there's at least one other ir11 book that you did a forward for stepford wives um i'm just curious what it why it speaks to you uh well in both cases i was introduced to write the forwards so uh, uh, I had the opportunity, but growing up, there was so much horror in the late 60s going into the 70s, and all of that seems to have been triggered by Rosemary's Baby. Uh, I'll have more to say on that later, but until that point, horror was very much centered around science and the atom bomb and Martians, but it was mostly science horror. And it wasn't really until Rosemary's Baby that horror took on this kind of demonic aspect of good versus evil. And it started a trend that lasted at least 10 years, uh, probably closer to 15 years. Yeah, um, well said. So we start off Rosemary's Baby with Rosemary and her uh, her husband, Guy, and they're just kind of going over this apartment that they want to get. And um, there's they already signed up for the one that they thought they wanted. Brantford becomes, looks like it's becoming available. And Brennan, actually, I kind of want to hear, cause you just reread it. So mm-hmm. I kind of want to hear you go over this in case I miss over anything in case I gloss over it. Yeah. So, I mean, we're, we're introduced to Rosemary and guy, like you said, uh, I don't even know if I would say they are, you know, looking at one apartment, they kind of, they almost feel kind of pigeonholed into that first apartment. And then a, a room at the Bram opens up and they kind of uh, maneuver their way out of the first one in order to get to the Bramford. And um, they get from uh, Rosemary's friend Hutch, they get a little bit of a history of the Bramford. And it is just absolutely soaked in all these horrific things that a uh, uh, a girl from Nebraska, you know, would never have to have to deal with. But now that she's in the big city, um, you know, all, all this stuff. And one of the big ones that's going to come back later on to us is Adrian Mercado. Um, so what I love about this part is that whole aspect of uh, this this girl who was raised Catholic, you know, who moved out to the city away from family. And now she's almost kind of uh, a little bit of a distance still, but she's almost kind of confronted with these real world evils. Uh, and actually, Chuck, I would love to hear your your thoughts on that piece, the the girl from the Midwest coming out to New York City. Well, it kind of is a, of a piece with a lot of other uh, Ira Levin novels. So many of his novels start with that new beginning. A Kiss Before Dying uh, opens with a young couple who are going downtown to be married by a justice of the peace. And that ends with the, the, the man duping the girl to the roof where he throws her off and kills her. Mm. Stafford Wives is about a couple that is uh, starting a new life out in the suburbs. But eventually that's revealed to be that the husband has found out long before that Stafford is the place to go if you want to kill your wife. And what we're seeing in the very first part of Rosemary's Baby is that Guy Woodhouse is a really good liar because he's the one that calls the uh, the landlord or the leaser where they've already signed a letter of intention. And he makes up this enormous lie about how he has a 
an opportunity to be in a road show going to Vietnam? And don't those boys overseas deserve a good road show? And he does so to the extent that the, the, the least person asks if he will say hello to a relative of hers that's serving in Vietnam. I mean, that whole opening is just to demonstrate that Guy Woodhouse is a kind of sociopath. Yeah. And Sliver, Sliver opens with a new beginning, a young woman moving into a new apartment. So many Ira Levin narratives open with that new beginning that is really just a, an ending. Not to get way off uh, the Rosemary's Baby path, but we just did an episode about Burnt Offerings. by, um, yeah. and, and it's really similar in the beginning where there's this new young couple, this dream house, and they're trying to essentially escape the big city. So I don't know the answer to this, but do you know, was that like a running theme in the 60s where everyone thought their dream was a big city, but really they just kind of want to get away from it all? You know, I, I think that was, uh, huh. Yeah, I might have been an extension of that kind of gothic fantasy mm. where uh, the young woman ends up married to the charismatic guy in the isolated house in the country. You know, it is Jane Eyre. It is so many novels where the young woman goes insane because she's put into isolation in the countryside. And we forget about the kind of isolation that people achieve in, in skyscrapers. I know people in New York, it takes them longer to get from their apartment to the street than it does for me to get from my house in the woods into downtown Portland. Wow. And so isolation can be vertical. It can be spatial as well as just geographical. And so I think in a way we're seeing this kind of Gothic isolation acted out in, in as many ways as possible. That's a good point. Uh, my brother-in-law used to live in Boston and, and he told me it took well over an hour to get three blocks away from where he lived to his, his, his place of, of business. And I mean, you could walk there. Yeah. That's a, that's a great point. I didn't think of that. Um, so Brennan, you're a little bit better at articulating uh, describing plots. Can you kind of pick up where we left off where they take they us get... to where's next? Yeah. Sure. So, uh, you know, definitely we really want to focus in on what, on what Chuck said, where we see the first inkling of, you know, guy being this, this con artist, basically this master liar, um, because that's certainly going to come back later in the plot. But once they start getting settled at the Bram, uh, after that, we meet uh, Minnie and Roman Castavet and, they, you know, right off the bat, we can tell these are going to, these people are going to be integral to the plot. Uh, Minnie, Minnie kind of makes the first appearance and she's just very kooky, a little, a little bit wacky, the nosy neighbor. Um, and the way that Ira Levin writes her is he's funny. Like he, he's got this, <laughs> it, it, it's, he's subtle, funny. Um, and a lot of that comes out in the dialogue of his characters. Um, and I, I really appreciated it a lot more the second time I read this through. Um, I picked up on it the first, appreciated it the second. So, you know, Minnie wants to just right off the bat, almost kind of ingratiate herself in Rosemary's life. You know, she wants to see every aspect of the apartment. She, uh, she she jokes about how she has a big nose because she's so nosy um, and she invites Guy and Rosemary over for dinner. And, you know, Guy kind of, oh, I don't really want to go. They have this kind of silly little back and forth. And then they do end up going over there. Um, and Roman kind of uh, wins over Guy. And from there, they end up um, almost kind of becoming friends. He's over there a fair bit. Um, and this is where we uh this is where we kind of start seeing a little bit of this separation between rosemary and guy that becomes a pretty big plot point and um chuck how about we throw it to you at that point well uh, you're, you're leaving out one sort of key character is through the partition wall they hear uh roman oh, and they hear yes. uh ruth gordon but they don't meet them until they've met terry gianofrio who's a yes. former drug addict prostitute that is living with uh, Roman and Minnie. And 
at the they they come back to the apartment one night and there is Terry on the sidewalk. She's dead. She's thrown herself from the window. And it's at that moment that Roman and Minnie walk up and they physically meet over Terry Gianofrio's bloody body laying there on the sidewalk. Uh, and that's a really important plot point is that Terry Gianofrio has killed herself for some unknown reason. You know what? I never thought of it. Maybe, maybe you guys kind of figured this out, but was Terry someone that was supposed to be Rosemary? Was she supposed to be the host of, of this devil? I don't think they talk about that in either the book or movie, but now that we we're talking about right now, I'm kind of thinking that's what her whole purpose was. Well, she, she really was because in her speech in the basement with Rosemary, she says, at first I thought they wanted me for a sex thing. Oh, they right. turned out to be really genuine like parents to me. Hmm. And then later through the partition wall that night, when Rosemary has the dream of the nuns and the bricked up windows, which I understand is supposed to be a dream of contraception, that as a Catholic, she's using contraception and she should not be. And that's why the, the windows in the dream have been bricked up. But we also hear Minnie through the wall. And Minnie is saying, I told you we shouldn't have told her. I told you she would not understand. So it's kind of implied that they were setting her up for this impregnation and that they told her and that she subsequently committed suicide. Okay. The, the other part that figures in there is after Terry's death, um, they, they gift Rosemary the, um, the necklace with the Tannis root. And it was the same one that uh, she had seen Terry wearing. She kind of has this little, uh, you know, maybe it's not the same one. Maybe it's it. Maybe it's a very similar one. But deep down, you get the you you expect that Rosemary knows exactly what she's got, and she doesn't particularly care for this uh, stinky herb that she's that she's now wearing around her neck. I really like the uh, dream sequences in the movie. They're um, I know they're meant to be dreamy for lack of a better word but they they i just watched it again earlier today and it's just so eerie and creepy like there's not a whole lot going on i think that's why it's so it just it crawled under my skin because there's no dialogue when people are talking and there's just this ringing of the phone um that's that's really all i'm leaving it after the dream sequences but as far as the book's dream sequences, Brennan, I'd actually like to hear from you what your thoughts were on. Did you kind of get an eerie feeling on those? Well, definitely. And especially the one uh, I actually want to throw in a couple more things before we get to, I guess, if you want to call it a dream sequence. But, um, you know, kind of the next big thing we talk about the separation beginning between Guy and Rosemary um, and essentially what happens next is he's up for a part guy doesn't get it and pretty quick here we find out that the person who did get it has been just struck blind out of nowhere um and it's you know guy certainly doesn't want to get the part that way or at least that's what he he tells us uh but nonetheless it's a it's a big break you know and even if this show isn't great it's going to get him a lot of attention that's going to get him parts in the future so from there, he's kind of on cloud nine and, you know, this this elephant in the room of them having children, you know, that's been kind of waffling back and forth. He says, you know what, let's do it. Let's go for it. And that's that's where our next dream sequence comes in. So, Chuck, throwing the ball to you. Well, you know, before that, I, I want to go back to the first dream sequence, because in the book, the first dream sequence ends up synopsizing the entire book that at the end of the dream sequence of the bricked up church windows and the fight with the nun. Mm. The dream sequence devolves in the book with her going through underground tunnels that lead from her uncle's auto repair shop to a, uh, the school. And ultimately they end up in a theater watching Patricia O'Neill in the Fountainhead, but it's live and it's not a movie. And so symbolically we're seeing all the rest of the plot synopsized because at this point she doesn't know about the tunnel from her apartment to the Castavet's apartment. And she doesn't know that in the third act, she's going to flee while she's pregnant into an air conditioned movie theater. And she doesn't know that 
this fake thing is really a real thing, vice versa. Everything is sort of predicted in that first dream sequence. And that meshes perfectly in some way with at the very end when Minnie, at the revelation of the baby, Minnie says, this was all preordained. This was all set to happen. This had to happen. It was all fated to be this way. And so this is this fantastic kind of setup and suggested, you know, by Minnie's speech that was all predestined. And then, and then all of it came to happen because it was, everyone was doomed to this. And I think that's one of the big functions of the first dream sequence, but they couldn't do it in the movie because it's too much visual stuff to represent. Uh, the second dream sequence is a re reiteration of what everything Hutch has said. Hutch has said all these foreboding things to establish precedent about doomed places in London. So he talked about all of these, these, this haunted location in London where many, many people lived unhappy lives and many people were killed. And ultimately the house was torn down. And all of those kind of hutch clues are reiterated in the second dream sequence, which leads to the Kennedys and it leads to Rosemary's realization that she's being raped. And I'll, I'll toss it back to you. Yeah, so that, that dream sequence in particular in the film Man, I mean, that, it's just so creepy. It, it, she's on this boat. She's getting undressed. It's jumping from being on the boat, being naked, being in a bikini, being surrounded by all these beautiful people at, a, you know, a Kennedy party. And um, it's like a, a strange junction between the beautiful people and what is supposed to be like this glamorous life. And, and, and she's getting raped and uh, by the devil. Um, also, the Pope is in the second dream because the oh, Pope is visiting New York at that time. Right. And in the book, the Pope comes to her as she's in bed and she's trying to hide the fact that she's having an orgasm in the book. Mm -hmm. She's talking to the Pope while she's having an orgasm. And she's trying to hide the fact that she's coming like crazy. And the Pope leans in with his ring and he says, you may kiss my ring. And in the ring is that ball. And inside that ball is Anna Maria Alberghetti, the actress that Terry Gianofrio is supposed to look like. But they can't really do that in the movie because it's just too much special effects. So in the movie, the dream more or less ends with the Pope's ring coming into her field of vision. And that's where the dream ends. Yeah. And uh, I don't know if this was lack due to lack of the ability to do it, but the shots of the actual devil um, and the kind of shadow that's cast over pretty much everything during that sex scene, uh, rape scene, um, it, it made it more creepy, the fact that they didn't show everything. Do you have any inkling as to, like, they show the devil, he's, you know, that goat man or whatever. They didn't show a whole heck of a lot. Like, they showed quick shots of the face and whatnot. Do you have any inkling as to... Uh, how the physical effect, the practical effects were and why they were the way they were meaning it was it budgetary do you know if it was kind of um that's just what roman polanski the director wanted any any clue as to how that went down well in the book i think polanski tried to stay as true to the book as possible okay. uh, he really only of the entire book there's really only one small sequence that didn't go into the movie and so in the book, the devil is described as it's Guy Woodhouse, but Guy Woodhouse is wearing a leathery suit of armor. And so it's, she's basically trying to rationalize that her husband feels this very different way while he's on top of her and that he, and that his penis is much bigger than normal. Hmm. She feels enormously filled. And so She's rationalizing that it's still her husband, but that he's wearing a, a kind of a gorilla suit or a suit of armor made of leather. And suddenly her wanger is enormous. Uh, and that uh, I think she might even be thinking that uh, his fingernails are, are ragged because right. we do have a shot of claws going down the length of her body. Uh, Which makes sense for the next scene when she wakes up the next morning. She's kind of 
she sees guy come in and ask what's going on. And uh, I wrote down the quote from the film. um, And he says that he's trying to stay true to the baby night. And at one point he, she says, Oh, I was when I was knocked out. And he replies with, it was kind of fun in a necrophile kind of way. Now my wife isn't a fan of these types of films, but she was in the living room with me just watching and you know what, man, Chuck, if that was me and her, um, she'd whip my ass. And I don't think I'd be allowed in my own house <laughs> that I pay the mortgage. on. <laughs> I've just uh, fucked up in some way. I, I meant to shut off my Outlook email and I've lost my camera. I can't see you guys. Can you see me? Yes. Yeah, we can still see you. Okay. Then I'm just going to go with it because <laughs> right now I'm just looking at shit. So okay, okay. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> Um, yeah, and I, I think that was almost like the if you're if you as the reader are teetering on the edge of you know how much of this is imagined and paranoia or is this guy actually a shitbag? This is just kind of your your little over the top clue that oh, okay he's he's I don't know if we want to go full shitbag at this point, but he's definitely not super trustworthy. You know, I that's. That that's not something that a that an ethical character does. You know, what wakes up the next morning and says, "Guess what I did while you were passed out." And I think it's also worth noting that uh, prior to that hallucination uh, slash dream sequence, um, Guy and Rosemary uh, are brought dessert from uh, Minnie Castavet, and uh, Rosemary can't finish hers, refuses to finish hers because it tastes a little off. It's a little chalky. Um, and, and I think that observation of trying to rationalize the the person who's having sex with her as her husband in costume in with all these it, these um, caveats, almost it's not just, oh, he's wearing a gorilla costume and his nails are sharp. And, oh, I didn't remember his dick being that big. Um, there's a lot there. And I think that almost kind of speaks to the fact that it's not just sheerly dream sequence. It's, it's partially hallucination as well. And, and it is also very much informed by uh, all this ideas about the Kennedys and Catholicism that were so active in politics at that point. So it's, it kind of brings back all a lot of elements, including what Hutch had talked about. You know, what? I just realized this, um, so this was only four years after Ken, uh, JFK was assassinated. So that was still a, that was still fresh. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't think we got to cover the history of JFK. I, I personally love him. Uh, he's a Catholic boy from Irish Catholic boy from my neck of the woods. So I got a soft spot for him, but we all know, we know his, his uh, checkered past. So it, it's starting to, <laughs> this is making even more sense. Um, I didn't pick up on some of these things. Um, Okay, so we go from I'm going to jump ahead uh, to the next scene. And is that that's not when she starts declining the drinks, is it? Am I going a little bit too far? Oh, no, no. It's not until um, it's not until after the party. Well, no, it's, it's even further down the road. It might have been after she gets Hutch's book that she starts to decline the drinks. Right. Okay, so, oh, she has a party with her girlfriends. While she's in the greatest amount of pain. (laughs) Yeah. So so backtracking even more, you know, she has the pregnancy confirmed. Uh, She starts to suspect she's pregnant, has it confirmed by Dr. Hill. She is perfectly content uh, seeing Dr. Hill. Uh, And then Minnie and Roman insist that she begin to go with uh, their uh, trusted friend, Abraham Saperstein. Uh, who is a renowned, um, oh gosh, the word's escaping me, but uh, baby doctor, let's go Obstetrician. Obstetrician is the right word. Uh, so she visits him and, you know, his his kind of mantra is, if your body craves it, eat it. If it, if it doesn't want it, it doesn't need it. And, you know, all of that pain that's building and, and, and the misery, it's, it's perfectly normal and it will go away. Uh, and, he also is a very big fan of stay away from baby books and don't listen to your friends. Every, every 
it, you know, he just kind of sets her up with this almost, um, not secrecy, but don't trust anyone but me. And so the, 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 it's isolating her. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's a much better way of putting what I was tiptoeing around. <laughs> well, and there's another aspect to the book that never, never gets talked about. And I corresponded with Ira Levin in the last few years of his life, and he would never really address this. He said that originally, back in the early 60s, he wanted to write a book about what if you were pregnant and you didn't know what you were pregnant with. And he had thought originally about writing about aliens impregnating a woman. But there had been a really popular book called The Midwitch Cuckoos uh, about aliens impregnating a whole city of women, a whole town of women. And that was turned into Village of the Damned. So the culture had already been there. And his next thought was, what if you were impregnated by the devil? And so that's how he started writing Rosemary's Baby. But I always thought that what happened in the real world just before that was that women had been given thalidomide by their obstetricians, the German sedative that was supposed to help them sleep better while they were pregnant. And because of this thalidomide, they gave birth to deformed children of greater and lesser extent. And thalidomide was characterized by a kind of stunting of the limbs. Uh, When you think of Lobster Boy, uh, these these people who were born either with their hands coming out of their shoulders or with their fingers fused into kind of uh, almost like claws or, or like lobster claws. And so really early in the book, while Laura Louise, one of her neighbors, is knitting booties for the baby while she's still pregnant, Rosemary sees the booties and thinks Laura Louise is a terrible knitter because she's knitting these booties as if they're for claws instead of hands. Holy shit. And then later in the reveal scene, when we finally see the baby, everyone is saying to her, look at its hands, look at its feet. Mm. And they're basically pointing out characteristics that would be characteristics of a baby deformed by thalidomide. And so I really think that Ira Levin was tapping into the horror of women during that time who were being given drugs that they later find out, found out were fantastically dangerous. And that in the shadow of thalidomide, even for five or 10 years after thalidomide, women were terrified of the drugs that they were prescribed by their obstetricians. But Levin could not say I'm writing a novel that is exploitive of the thalidomide tragedy because that would be, he'd be condemned for that. So he had to write Rosemary's Baby and he had to make it about this kind of ludicrous other thing because he couldn't really tell people what it was really about. And I've always thought it was about thalidomide. That's absolutely fascinating. I, You know what? You said he can't write about that, but in the 60s, I don't know enough about the sociological side of this, but isn't that kind of wasn't that kind of taboo at the time to write about Catholicism in that light? Well, in a way, he was also writing about women's health care and about abortion. Oh, okay. And so, and he was writing about birth control, and abortion and birth control were still enormously unresolved issues. Mm-hmm. So, I think they both come into play. There's a lot of unresolved social issues there, but I think this idea of women being able to control their own reproductive health care was kind of the baseline, you know, unstable issue. That makes sense. Uh, Bernie, you want to take us away, sir? Yeah, I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to echo that. I think that was the whole thalidomide thing. That's fascinating. Um, you know, one of my favorite things and least favorite things simultaneously about doing the show is, is reading a lot of these books for the first time in 2020, 2021, um, and wondering what it would be like to read Rosemary's Baby in 1967, what it would be like to read Psycho in 1959, um, and without the uh, pollution that comes from these things being so ingrained in you know our pop culture and everything like that. So after we meet uh, Dr. Saperstein, um, 
like we said, Rosemary, um, she has the party with her friends and she's just utterly miserable, but she's trying to take it all in stride. She's drinking the vitamin drinks that Minnie uh, brings by and she ends up meeting with Hutch. He comes over a day and she kind of lays everything on him. And he's, you know, as as his character has been pretty much since the first time he's introduced, he's very suspicious and he's not willing to take any of it in stride. He has questions about everything. He's he doesn't seem to really trust anybody um, except himself. And um, he meets Roman. Roman comes by to see if Rosemary needs anything, comes in for a few minutes and there's. A little bit of uh, an uncomfortable standoff between the two. And then we see Guy come home a little bit later. And once uh, once um, hit, Hutch goes to leave, he finds out that he's missing a glove. So, Patrick, let's throw it to you from there. Sorry, I was muted. Um, yeah, so it, it takes her a little, Rosemary, it takes her a little while to even piece that part together but um i kind of i like how ira levin he writes this in a way that where it's kind of like a mystery because there's a lot of clues i mean it's like agatha christie with a horror element um and you know what man i'm actually chuck if it's all right i'd like to throw it to you just because I'd like to hear your your take on where we go from here. Well, I think that, that the one thing to acknowledge is that uh, Rosemary's Baby is is modeled on uh, probably the most popular model for uh, fiction in America in the 20th century. And uh, that is there is a martyr character who kills himself. And then there is a murdered character uh, who is about to tell the truth and has to be murdered. And then there's a witnessing character who succeeds both of them and lives beyond the story. And so in Gone with the Wind, for example, Melanie knows that if she has another baby, she will die. So she has another baby and she dies. And in this case, typically with a female character, they're not murdered, but they are banished. And Scarlett O'Hara ends up banished. And Red Butler leaves and goes back to Savannah. So he's a witnessing character. In Valley of the Dolls, Jennifer North kills herself. Neely O'Hara, who's named after Scarlett O'Hara, is completely banished and shunned. And uh, Anne Wells, the beautiful witnessing character, goes back to Lawrence, Lawrenceville. Uh, uh, One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest, uh, uh, Great Gatsby. They both have a character who is martyred first. Myrtle throws herself in front of the car that Daisy is driving Mm. and more or less kills herself. And then Gatsby is murdered. In Cuckoo's Nest, Billy Bibbit kills himself. Uh, Randall Patrick McMurphy has to be murdered. Big Chief leaves the scene and is telling the story. And so with Rosemary's Baby, it's basically that martyr, murder, witness model that American readers adore that. It is their, I think, their favorite model for the 20th century fiction. And so Terry Gianofrio kills herself. Hutch, who's about to bring the truth, has to be murdered. And Rosemary, at the end, Rosemary is really determined that she's going to take the baby and throw herself out the window and kill them both. Mm. But she doesn't. She accepts the baby. She is willing to be the baby's mother and to raise the devil's child. So she is the witnessing character that continues on after the story. But we have to discover through the the truth bringer character, the Hutch character, we have to be given the means for the discovery process. So Hutch leaves her a book that is given to her at his funeral. And that book allows her to realize that her neighbor is a devil worshiping, you know, uh, was originally Roman castavet. And so that starts her entire discovery process through the second act, uh, where she ends up going to the Strand bookstore and getting even more books about uh, Satan worshipers. And I'm going to toss it back so I don't do all the talking. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. No problem. Uh, Yeah, it was pretty neat when she calls 
and asked for Hutch, <clears throat> excuse me, and it's a new person, a new voice. And for me, anyways, reader, viewer, I'm just, I'm seeing these key players, but then you throw in a, someone else that knows Hutch, but Rosemary and Guy don't know her. And she kind of gets involved a little bit. And it's just for a moment, I'm wondering if Rosemary's just going to kind of spill her guts. She doesn't, but um, eventually she finds out that, like you, Chuck said, Hutch dies and she pieces together once she literally pieces this um, anagram mixed with uh, pieces of clues that her neighbor, Mr. Kasovit, is a devil worshiper, which I meant to say earlier, that was mentioned by Hutch within the first eight minutes of the film. Um, I can't remember how early it's mentioned in the book, but um, we find that out and it, it just, everything starts to tumble for her. It's like an avalanche. You know, she she's piecing all this together. She's trying to figure out how the hell she can get out of this place. Um, Brennan, for you, I'd like to hear your thoughts just focusing on Guy, his character, because we've we've covered that he's an actor, uh, both yep. as a job uh, occupation and in in real life. Um, and I've I've known on the indie scene, I've known people that were excellent actors, but <laughs> as fr- <laughs> as friends, I was like, <laughs> I can't tell when you're messing with me in very bad ways. Um, I want to hear your thoughts on Guy. From this point on, when she's really, she's like, you guys are witches. You guys are in a coven because she reads about covens. And and uh, she's doing something that she was advised by the doctor not to do. Read a book. Books are full of information, which I I don't know if that goes any deeper than that. But I kind of love that. Like, the sword is the book. It's the power source. Um, so back to my question for you, Brennan. Focus on Guy. What are your thoughts on him from here on out? I think the the term gaslighting is misused quite a bit nowadays, but I think that what Guy is doing in this book is the perfect <laughs> representation of it, yeah. of what it really means to gaslight someone. Um, so, you know, we mentioned that with the book, he throws it out, you know, the, the hell with the fact that it was, you know, the, the last gift left after, uh, you know, Hutch goes into the coma and after he finally passes away uh, months later, um, he, he throws the book out because, you know, he was worried that she would get herself all worked up. Uh, you know, we find out that uh, tickets that he play tickets that he gave uh, Rosemary and Hutch months ago. Uh, he said he got them from one place and it turned out that wasn't true. She ran into his voice coach in, um, uh, I forget where, but, uh, the, the actor that he won the role from, or, you know, took the role from who went blind, uh, we find out that, uh, they switched ties like the day before it happened, you know, same thing with Hutch's glove going missing, uh, and she kind of pieces together that he's taking these uh, almost talismans from these people. And she kind of fills in the blanks that the cast of are kind of helping uh, him perform some sort of spell or something to get his way to, you know, curse this person, whatever word you want to put on it. Um, and, you know, from the word go, we said, oh, he's he, he's a good liar. He's um, he has no qualms about manipulating the first apartment into giving them back um their their um down payment uh but i think chuck used the word uh sociopathic uh and if you didn't i'm sorry i just put words in your mouth but that's you know we get a little taste of it on on page one and we see it come to fruition later on and it's interesting in the movie is early on a lot of times when they want to imply that uh uh is lying Roman Polanski has him deliver lines with his face turned away from the camera. And Polanski also loops these lines that don't necessarily have to be looped. For instance, when they come back from the first dinner party with Minnie and Roman, they, uh, she says, why did they take down all their pictures? There were uh, clean spots on the wall and the pictures that were there didn't fit those clean spots. 
So it was clear that they took down all their pictures before we went over there. And in response, Guy is turned away and it's one of the worst looping jobs ever. He says, I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't notice that. And this kind of completely implied insincerity is done so beautifully with these really bad loops where it's obvious it's dubbed in as badly as an Asian movie. Uh, you're thinking, why could not the, why couldn't they have looped that scene better? And why is he delivering this line to the back, to the back of the set? And it's because Polanski is always implying that he is lying in those moments. Wow. Yeah, so that's, that's good. It kind of sounds like a um, Kubrick film. I didn't know it got that. I didn't know it was that meticulously shot, but that makes sense. So I'm going to jump around a bit. So we go from there to, okay, so we got Hutch is dead. Guy is just close, but he's not completely revealed yet. And at this point, uh, I'm going to jump to the part where Rosemary just says, screw it, runs out of the apartment, goes into a phone, a pay, a pay booth and calls this other doctor and he's asleep, demands that she talks to him, uh, goes into his office. And at that point, you kind of think that she might get away. Um, is this kind of a, was, was this a, how do I phrase this? I'm wondering if this was done often in those times in the sixties where it's misleading to think that the good guy got away, but in reality, just like real life, the good guy doesn't always win. But um, my, what, as far as I know, Chuck is back then those books told stories where the good guy always wins. Is that, is that, is there any truth in that at all? Well, uh, one thing is that, if we're going to respect Rosemary, we have to see her have agency at some point. We have to see her no longer be the passive thing that is being so manipulated. Mm. And she has to at least make a token show of agency if we're going to stay with her, if we're going to care about her at all as a character. Okay. So it, beyond the discovery process, she has to take action. And that is discovering also that uh, uh, Saperstein is part of the conspiracy. And then trying to get a hold of Dr. Hill, trying to get into a hospital. This whole time, she's also calling her brother back in Omaha. And her brother, who's a ne'er-do-well, is just not picking up. She's trying to call her friends as well, and they're not picking up. So we have to see her at least try to save herself. That makes sense. Um, Brennan, I don't want to hog up the last 15 minutes, so you go ahead, sir. And that the scene where, you know, it seems for a minute like everything's going to be OK. Uh, you know, Dr. Hill is taking her seriously. Um, we find out, you know, he he says he knows of Dr. Saperstein uh, kind of makes it sound like they've had, you know, little in passing uh, interactions, but nothing, nothing momentous. Uh, and Levin does. He, he writes that scene so well to misdirect the audience and when you know when our scene changes and uh guy and and dr saperstein walk in the room and you know hill is complicit in the whole thing it's 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 a barn burner it's 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 one of my favorite scenes in the book um even though it's horrible it's one of my favorite scenes in the book um so you know, basically he's, she, she's back under Dr. Saperstein's care. They're kind of keeping her, um, drugged for lack of better words, but they're keeping her complicit. Essentially. She goes into labor. She has the baby. She wakes up and they tell her that the baby has died. Uh, the baby's gone and she stays pretty much isolated to use that word again. It does seem to be a theme here. Uh, to her apartment and they're pumping her breast milk because she's just delivered. And even though the baby is gone, her body doesn't know that. Um, and she can hear this baby crying in the distance. Sounds like it's maybe just on the other side of the wall. Like it's just in the next apartment. She's told that it's a new family on the floor above them that just moved in with a baby. Uh, and 
we kind of head down the uh, toward the finish line from here. Chuck, I'm going to send it to you. Well, um, then we have to see Rosemary again take action where she ends up drugging her, her captors and she ends up getting a, a big butcher knife and then sort of following the path through the tunnel into the Kastovitz apartment where there's a reception taking place uh, with a, a lot of kind of sort of international types who seem to be there from all over the world to welcome Satan's baby. And we have the confirmation of everything up to that point. We have uh, uh, Guy Woodhouse shown that he's this sort of squeamish cuckold. You know, he really yeah. is a cuckold because he's allowed his wife to get knocked up by the devil. Mm. And then we have a, some really funny comedy where uh, remember really early on, the first time they had dinner with the Castavets, uh, Roman Castavet overfilled their glasses and he ended up uh, getting a liquor on the new carpet. Mm. And Minnie was down there with a towel, rubbing it like crazy, trying to get the liquor up. And then later we have a, an almost identical scene where, where Rosemary drops the knife and it sticks in the floor. And then Minnie walks over, pulls the knife up, and she rubs the floor to try to get the, the wood grain back to how it was before. So we're kind of seeing this sort of comic completion of a bunch of setups from earlier in the movie. Uh, and you forgot about the third dream because after she gives birth, she dreams that she's back in Omaha and that she is presenting the baby to all of her blonde female relatives. Right. And they're all ooing and aahing over the baby. And it's a complete dream of sweetness and fulfillment uh, that kind of that she wakes up from. That's a good point. Yeah. And it is funny how many just kind of does that. No one's even threatened by this woman that's about to essentially snap for very valid reasons. But I want to just point out with the book, I think it was of its time. The way that they describe the Asian guys, Ira Levin writes in the Japanese and the going way back to the beginning when they're on the elevator. I think the, I don't know what term he uses, but he uses, he calls the black character, the colored or something like that, where it's like a title. And I don't really have much more to say than I just thought it was interesting. And I do know, I do pick up on that for the older books and I, I don't, I'm not too sure, but I don't, I don't know if they'd write it like that nowadays. Well, you know, uh, Eleven always, he wanted to acknowledge the black characters, but it was 1960, whatever. Mm. And so in the book, he has the elevator operator is a Negro with a pasted on smile who seems to hate everyone who hates them. And then later when Rosemary first goes down to the laundry room in the book, she walks in and it's all the black household help. It's all the women who are there to clean and to do laundry for the folks in the building. And as soon as Rosemary walks in, they all quit talking and no one says a word, all of these women for as long as she's down there. And she feels quote unquote, Negro oppressing. So mm-hmm. after that, she only goes down there in off hours when she's not going to be the token white person. And that's when she meets Terry Gianofrio. And in Stafford Wives, Ira Levin got a little more with it because the last couple to move to Stepford in this cycle story is a very successful female illustrator, and she's black. She writes and illustrates children's books, and she has a black husband, and we know that Stepford is going to get its first black female robot. So things are progressing in the Ira Levin world, but that's not for another 10 years. That's funny. That's... um. Yeah, so we we did another episode, and it goes along these lines, on Peter Benchley's Jaws. And uh, it was, we were talking about it with later on with Joe, Joe Lansdale, and he, he, he said something in the same vein as you. Basically, it's, it's social commentary. It's very – it's not surface level. Oh, you know, I don't – for lack of knowing how to say this, it's not surface level. I'm going to – see what I can get away with type of writing. It's very designed very uh, ingeniously. Um, kind of making a point. And, and that's what great writing does is, is it's social commentary of the times. Like 
jump into George Romero. I mean, that's what the whole Night of the Living Dead was. Um, Brennan, I'm kind of rambling. Why don't you take over for me? That's okay. So I, I'm going to take us to the end events, and I'm actually going to uh, to keep us at an hour. I'm going to wrap it into my final thoughts, if that's okay with you, gentlemen. Yes. Yep. So, you know, she ends up uh, – they they almost expect that she's going to want to keep her distance from this baby now that she knows that it is in fact the son of satan that rosemary is going to want nothing to do with it and it's it's almost minnie and minnie alone who kind of encourages her to go over to this baby to pick to pick him up uh he's got the little gloves on to cover his claws he's got these you know golden goat eyes and she loves him anyway and there is a little bit of um, the 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 ending is kind of uh, it's it's dark it's ominous but there's also a tinge of hope to it at least that's the way I read it. Now I'll I'll admit I have not read Son of Rosemary although I oh, did, I, I, I am going to be. Do not. <laughs> it's dreadful. It's terrible. <laughs> not I will, even I will just as a social trouble. experiment. The okay. son has sex with Rosemary. Uh, oh, Adrian no. <laughs> has sex with his mother. That's the big high point of the book. It's oh, it's awful. That is that's, that's a high point of the book. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, anyways, I have not read Son of Rosemary. I may not read Son of Rosemary. Uh, I like the kind of almost ambiguity to the ending of just this book to you know, kind of wondering where she leaves it. Like, yes, this is his father is the devil, he's 50% Satan. But he's also 50% me, so I believe there might be some good in him. And, and also, I, think of it in terms of romantic fatalism, because that movie came out at a time of Midnight Cowboy and Bonnie and Clyde and all these movies where people strove for a dream mm. and they ended up with shit and they had to do their best <laughs> with shit at the end. And so in, in terms of how people wanted movies to end, they didn't really want happy endings because the world was really falling to pieces. They wanted a movies that reflected the world where people had to do their best. That's yeah, that's absolutely it. But plus so, you're coming off of Vietnam. I mean, what was that? It, it's during the worst years of Vietnam. Yeah. It's during the worst years of the, the riots that were burning down American cities. There were so many things going wrong in the culture that you could not have a happy ending. You had to have these conflicted fatalistic endings. Hmm. Kind of makes me wonder what's going to come out of these uh, past few years. You know, uh, people, there's a lot of talk about romantic fatalism coming back. And that's why supposedly horror has come back so strong in the last few years is because people need to see these things through a metaphor uh, because mm. they can't address them directly. Yeah, I don't know if you're aware, but Stephen Graham Jones for the only good Indians, he just won a Mark Twain award. Um, and, that, you know, that's a guy that writes pretty much only horror that is just he's winning everything he's scooping up all the awards inside <laughs> so brennan your final thoughts are, are you complete with those final thoughts uh if i were to give this a star ranking honestly this is a five star one for me i absolutely loved this book and i loved it even more on the reread um my favorite thing about this i think is you almost get to choose your own adventure because if you are a hundred percent on board with Rosemary, there are enough clues in there that you can, you know, believe in Satan and witches from the first page. Uh, and if you want to read it as it could be all in her head up to a certain point, and that certain point is pretty much the ending, like the last couple pages, you could read it that way too. Um, I, I think the way he wrote it, it just seems very, to me, it seemed very purposeful to balance that line and give the reader a lot of information, a lot of clues, but never too much, never, never more than they need to just straight up enjoy the story. Uh, Chuck, I'm, I'm going to save you for last, if that's okay. Um, my final thoughts and the final scene, I don't think we actually cover the film side of it entirely. It doesn't show any, the baby, you don't see him at all. Um, it's just kind of the reactions of everyone. And uh, Rosemary going up to the baby, uh, Roman having her back, and her, as Chuck said, accepting the role of mother. Um, but my final thoughts are that I really enjoyed it. I, too, give it a five uh, because I just it hit everything 
on my checklist of books that I enjoy. Uh, it built up dread as good character development and the parts that were truly horrific were <laughs> they were they they were pretty messed up. Um, and it it just thinking that there's nothing like this before. Uh, and that's you know what that's all I got. Chuck, uh, what are your final thoughts? You know, uh, one thing to look at in the context of uh, all the Hollywood stars that were had aged out and they were completely obsolete. And in the early '60s, with whatever happened to Baby Jane, we had hag hag exploitation where you took the two sex symbols of their time, Bette Davis and Joan Crawford, and you made them hideous and you put them through this kind of grotesque story. Mm. And then you had Lady in a Cage with Olivia de Havilland. And so you had all these horror stories that were about exploiting and more or less misusing women who had once been fantastically beautiful. And in a way, Rosemary's Baby was the ultimate expression of exploitation because you had all the most attractive male and female actors of their generation. And you brought them back and you showed them naked and they were hideous naked. That's the ultimate humiliation is to show these former sex symbols standing around as naked Satan worshipers. So in terms of exploitation, it is completely exploitive and wonderful in a horrible way. And not just that, Polanski showed us real human blood for the first time in any fictional movie. The scene where Rosemary is having her blood drawn at Dr. Hill's office. There is a real nurse drawing real blood out of a real Mia Farrow. Oh, shit. And I she's did not being, know that. She's being forced to d- deliver these lines while she's got a huge honking needle in her arm. <laughs> and we're seeing her blood get sucked out. And that scene, the tenseness of that scene is so real and so horrible that I hope that she, they did it in one take. Because if they had to take her blood over and over for more takes, that would be awful. And there are so many really low, funny moments in the movie that are so subtly written. And in the book, uh, that moment where uh, Rosemary is breaking down, her husband has alienated her. And she's talking to Hutch. And she starts to weep. And she's saying how all actors are vain and self-centered. And as she's weeping, she says, I would imagine even even Laurence Olivier is vain and self-centered. And it's such a fantastically funny moment because there's probably no actor in the world at that time who is more vain and self-centered and famous for it than Laurence Olivier. (laughs) And having her say that in a moment when she's weeping is such a dark, funny moment, but it's also an insider moment. So all the people who are kind of aware of the culture are laughing behind their hands, where the people who are outside the culture think that it's a dramatic moment of of pathos. There's so many inside jokes in that. Uh, In the party scene, where the guests are kind of mingling, Roman Polanski does a cameo where he walks in dressed as a lesbian. He's all done up as this kind of very butch lesbian in a fur coat. And I believe he walks in with Sharon Tate, and she's done up as this kind of femme lesbian in a fur coat. And that moment is never really culturally acknowledged. It's it's his Alfred Hitchcock moment of walking into his own film. <laughs> uh, later, when, when Rosemary calls Donald Bumgard and says, did my husband take your tie? Roman Polanski had her talking to Tony Curtis, and she had no idea it was Tony Curtis. And so the whole time, Mia Farrow, the look on her face, she's trying to figure out who this familiar voice is. And she has no idea that it's, is Tony Curtis phoning from wherever just to do this kind of vocal cameo later? Well, the scene that was left out of the movie is that when she goes to the fantastics, the night that she's being put out of the apartment so they can perform a magic ritual in her apartment. There was a scene where she was coming out of the fantastics and she would run into Joan Crawford and, uh, 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 oh, I can't think of his name. Damn. Van William, Van Johnson, the blonde actor, Van Johnson. So again, she was going to run into these very old sex symbols doing cameos in Rosemary's Baby. Hmm. 
he ultimately took that scene out. It was one of the few scenes that were actually shot that weren't used. So there's just so much kind of Hollywood insider humor in that movie that uh, is never really acknowledged. It's completely overlooked. But there's a really, it's really a dark comedy on so many levels in the same way that uh, Gods and Monsters showed us that uh, the Frankenstein movies were very much dark comedies and were intended as dark comedies. That's a lot to think about, man. See, this is why we love doing it because Brian, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to speak for Brian real quick, but education-wise on older, uh, what we deem classic horror books, we are rookies. So hearing guys like you and other uh, established authors or even the guy that runs the, the show, Kim McKinley, um, we learn a lot. So I appreciate your time, uh, Chuck. Thank you, as always. And uh, just a little plug for you. Your latest essay, People, Places, Things, My Human Landmarks, that's on Scrib.com. Is there anything that you want to mention on that? Or, and apologies, I don't remember who it's with, your your latest podcast. Is there anything of those two things you want to talk about? Uh, I just did Joe Rogan. And in a couple mm-hmm. of weeks, I go to Los Angeles to do... Uh, uh, impact theory and to do armchair experts. Uh, I've got a new Substack, like everybody else in the world, I've got a Substack, and where I am posting a serialized novel and I am posting uh, really edgy fiction that I originally wrote as an anthology television series that was a little too edgy for everybody. <laughs> it was <laughs> too edgy for everybody. Apple gave us development money, but ultimately, it was too dark and too over the top to go into production. So it is now short stories that will gradually come out over this uh, Chuck Polinick Substack thing. So, and it's also a lot of uh, writing lectures that kind of springboard off of my writing book, which was called Consider This. So the Substack, the Scribd essay, which is a huge essay, which is a huge essay that includes the strange, impossible fact that guess who my babysitter was when I was a very, very small child. I have no idea. Who was Roman Polanski married to? Oh, I don't remember. Damn it. Sharon Tate. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Wow. She was Sharon your babysitter? Tate. When she was a teenager, she was best friends with our babysitter. And our babysitter, whose name was also Sharon, would bring her over all the time. Holy shit. And it wasn't until she was dead that my mother told us, do you remember your babysitter? <laughs> your babysitter is dead. And so Holy. that's what is such a strange, small, interconnected world this is. And I think that's why we love Ira Levin's books is because they are so densely interconnected that the, the, some of the few books that really seem to reflect the world. Yeah, that is fascinating. And uh, just I wanted to cover real quick. Before we say goodbye, uh, your episode on uh, the Joe Rogan experience, uh, experience, it's episode 1726. I loved it, but uh, in particular, for those that have not heard it yet, just a few things you guys talk about. The hypersensitive culture, you had some really interesting views on that. Uh, your head trauma, which, uh, to keep it real, plain and simple, transformed your writing in ways I never knew about before. And you cover stuff about your past. And um, I'm not going to... Sorry, go ahead, Chuck. We also make a really good point about Alien. And why <laughs> Alien, the yes, Alien movie yes. wasn't just a horror movie. It was maybe the ultimate expression of 1970s romantic fatalism. Yes. It kind of told us the truth about what the entire space program was going to lead to. And that was just shit jobs in space. And nobody had ever told us that all of the Jetsons and lost in space and Star Trek was really just going to end up with shit jobs in space. That and the fact that Ridley Scott wasn't the first choice to be director blew my fucking mind, man. <laughs> and I got that wrong. I've got to go back and, and correct. Oh, really? Because that creative team that in- included the, the Mexican director who had done El Topo, mm-hmm. they were originally put together to do a Dune movie. They were going to oh. do the original Dune and when the director dropped out, instead of doing the Dune movie, they did Alien. Okay, so one great one or another great story. <laughs> That's exciting. Have you seen the new Dune? I have not. 
I haven't either. So we have nothing to talk about for that. Um, <laughs> Chuck, in all, in all seriousness, so thank you for your time, man. It, it means the world to us. And uh, this will be out uh, December 1st. So last episode this season, this year. Um, gentlemen, as always, it is a pleasure talking with the two of you and listeners. You make choices in podcasts. Can we miss you? Thank you for listening, everybody. Good night. Thank you so much, Chuck, and have a great time teaching tonight, brother. All right. Yep. You have a good night. All right. Appreciate Bye. it, man. As always. Ciao.